0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 22 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is our very first machine learning special. So, to talk about machine learning, neural networks, core ML and all that fun stuff, uh, I've invited another awesome guest. Uh, she is a developer at Novoda and she's a frequent conference speaker about machine learning and she's a true machine learning enthusiast. It's Megan Kane. Welcome to the show, Megan.
1: Hey everyone. Thanks for having me, John.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So, uh, we met not that long ago. We actually just came back from a very great edition of the App Builders Conference.
1: Yeah, that's right. We were just in Lugano, Switzerland. It's the Italian part of Switzerland, um, which is absolutely beautiful.
0: Yeah, it was really, like, for me, a big surprise just how beautiful it was. And to see everyone, like, post pictures about it and, and, you know, really having a good time in this little town. It was almost like... You know how WWDC, like how San Jose or San Francisco becomes the conference for one, for one conference? It's kind of, it was kind of a little bit like that.
1: Yeah, I feel as though we descended upon the town and you could, everywhere you were walking, uh, you would see app developers. So uh, I think we took over Lugano for a couple of
0: days. Yeah, we kind of did. It was a lot of fun. It was great. Great. So, uh, at the conference you were doing another really great talk about machine learning and you've uh, done, you know, a bunch of talks lately about this topic. So, uh how what kind of got you started with 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 kind of like, you know, becoming very enthusiastic about machine learning and learning more about it and starting kind of spreading this knowledge to other people?
1: Right. Yeah. So, I guess we can go a little bit further back uh even before I was an iOS developer professionally and when i was in school i studied math and computer science and uh, the classes that i liked the most were actually artificial intelligence related and i did actually take a machine learning class but when i was studying it was kind of the wrong time for that field because it was coming out of what they call the machine learning and artificial intelligence winter and techniques such as deep learning and neural networks weren't really considered viable and practical they were on a, Neural networks on paper existed, and people thought they could be a good idea, but we had yet to see them doing anything uh, awesome in practice. And so had I had been four years younger, I probably would have just studied this and gone full, all in on it. But um, my interest kind of fizzled out after school, and then I went to be an iOS developer. But then uh, in the past couple of years, machine learning has really taken off, and so when uh, Apple announced Core ML, and when TensorFlow was getting more popular in the past couple of years, I started thinking, huh, maybe I should go back to this stuff and I can merge both what I'm doing professionally and what I really liked studying and, um, yeah, put them together and try to spread the knowledge to other people that uh, you can do both of these things and there's a lot of potential for it.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. I think like machine learning is definitely one of these topics where, you know, it's such a such a different world from what we do when we're just like writing apps using Swift or some other like language that is, you know, a kind of standard uh, quote-unquote normal programming language. And I feel like a lot of people, they kind of don't really know where to start when it comes to getting into machine learning. And that would definitely be true for myself as well.
1: Right. Yeah. So I mentioned that I studied a bit of it, but to be honest, I kind of had to relearn everything, and I don't think that this should be something that people should expect that they need. I think it's totally fine if people uh, have absolutely no machine learning background, and they're Swift developers, and they uh, just want to get started. And so this is a very common question that I get asked, like, how do, where do I get started? The good thing is that there are so many resources out there, and I think that the most important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the terminology that you come across is—it's just terminology. Um, there are very simple explanations for a lot of the um, a lot of the, com- the concepts that you might come across, um, and you just have to put in time to learn them. So, uh, throughout the podcast, we can go through like different resources that are great to get started.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think it's and I think if you if you approach it from the perspective of uh, how can I get started with making something that I can put into my app, it's a good angle to go. Uh, as an app developer.
0: It's kind of like, you know, always like this when you are diving into something that is a bit more specific or like a different realm than you're used to working with. And I I think, you know, many people feel the same way about like functional programming or about graphics programming or any other of these like more specific areas within, you know, computer science or within programming and software development in general. And yeah, like you say, it's so much about like, you have to learn the specific terminology and the specific... Uh, areas that you need to dive deeper into Mm -hmm. but once you start doing that you know the kind of puzzle starts unfolding in a way
1: yeah i i completely agree like as with anything that has a little bit more depth like you mentioned functional programming graphics programming uh it's not something that you're going to learn overnight but it's definitely something that you can uh, make a path for learning and chip away at over time
0: yeah exactly so you mentioned earlier that there was this uh period of time referred to like the winter of machine learning so what kind of science do we have now that we are kind of getting out of this winter you know now we have this like big second wave of machine learning and what kind of what kind of identifies this kind of new way of doing machine learning and what differences are there from like the old way of doing it
1: right okay so it's kind of like a amalgamous uh topic but so the biggest breakthrough that kind of catalyzed everything was um so uh, there's this competition uh, called the ImageNet Competition, and it's basically ImageNet is a very big data set uh, of millions of images uh, that uh, can be categorized into a thousand different categories. So you have like pictures of dogs, cats, boats, um, tables. So basically, you'll, um, the competition is for machine learning experts to come up with a model that classifies an image into one of these a thousand categories. And so there have been like different techniques for doing this over the years. And in 2012, um, somebody used a deep neural network in order to uh, model this problem. And it outperformed any other model uh, in a significant way. And since then, uh, the industry has been going in that direction. And there's been an explosion of machine learning models that are being done with neural networks and deep learning that have proven to be effective. So like facial recognition, um, any sort of image recognition task or video classification or audio classification tasks, these are being done with deep learning now and are very, very accurate.
0: Awesome. So uh, we have a bunch of things we want to talk about in this episode. And I think like our overall goal is to provide some starting points for everybody who wants to get into machine learning, you know, get started, you know, start kind of demystifying this thing and learning more about the terminology and, you know, provide a starting point. So I think one kind of good place to start is just to kind of talk a little bit about what exactly is machine learning like what are we trying to achieve with it and what how what does it look like on like a very high level. So Megan what would you what would your kind of elevator pitch be for what machine learning is?
1: Sure. Uh so I'm not gonna come up with like an original definition because I think that the way that it's defined is actually really practical. So machine learning uh, is a technique for um, having a machine learn without being explicitly programmed. So uh, you can think of it if you're trying to recognize an image of a cat or a dog, instead of going the normal like algorithm route of um, trying to define uh, very specific features of the image in order to classify it as a cat or a dog. So say uh, you want to co- you would come up with uh, okay, if it has these ears and it has this eye and you would have to have like ways of measuring those pixels and you would have to directly define this. instead of doing that, um, in machine learning you're going to just pass a ton of data in order into the machine and it's going to adapt over time in order to create a function that describes uh, what a cat is versus what a dog is. So it's a technique for learning over time and it learns implicitly rather than being told exactly what to look for.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is something that I think, it was very, very hard for me to kind of wrap my head around in the beginning It's like, I'm going to write a program that essentially doesn't know anything about what it's supposed to do in the beginning, but then it's like learning that on its own rather than me giving it the specific instructions. I'm kind of providing it with the learning and with the data set to to, to teach itself, but I'm not programming it explicitly to kind of do this and do that.
1: Right. Yeah. And there's actually like a underpinning of uh, neural networks, for example, which is a very common technique, um, Uh, In machine learning, there's an underpinning of it that uh, a neural network is a universal approximator for any function so that even if it's uh, initialized with like random parameters in order to in the function for what it's describing, it will eventually given enough data and enough compute power and time, it will eventually be able to approximate whatever problem you're trying to solve.
0: I think one really great example that you had in your talk at App Builders, which we'll put a link in the show notes to that video, is that you had something like, you know, you could theoretically use machine learning for something like addition or like a math problem, but it probably wouldn't wouldn't be a very effective solution to that problem.
1: Right. So that was the point I was trying to make in my talk. And I think it's something that's very important to keep in mind is that machine learning is just one tool. And so you, you have a lot of tools you can use in order to solve a problem. So you need to think of whether or not your problem is suitable for machine learning. If you're just trying to figure out if a number is even or odd, uh, this is a very extreme example, but you, you wouldn't want to use machine learning because you can just write a very simple couple of line algorithm for this. Um, and it actually might not even perform that well because, um, I mean, it, it won't be as deterministic as your deterministic algorithm.
0: Right, it won't just be able to go like into the CPU, you know, to actually run those instructions and then return the result. It would have to like go through the entire network and figure it out.
1: Yeah, you would be giving it tons of examples to, fig- to figure out what an even and odd number is rather than just uh, looking at the division by two.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think that's a really, really good uh, explanation, actually, because for me, like what that kind of clicked when you said that, which is like, right, you know, uh, you can use machine learning for pretty much any problem, but it's like you have to you have to let the the algorithm, you have to let the system reason its way to that conclusion, rather than giving it those specific instructions, like divide by two and check if the if the remainder is zero.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I was I was reading an article that Google uh, didn't use machine learning in in any of their like first prototypes of their internal products um, in like recent history. So it's something that a lot of companies or like product development uh, cycles will use as like a, a special technique rather than something that you think of right away.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we've talked a bit about now about, you know, you have to train your model. You have to train your algorithm to do the right thing or do what you want it to do pretty much. So what exactly do, do we mean by training? Like how do you train a machine learning algorithm?
1: If we go back to the uh, image classifier, uh, when you're trying to classify if an image as a cat or a dog, this is just a very canonical example, you can certainly do more than this, but training is the process where um, the learning takes place in the model. So this is the process where you pass a ton of data samples into the model uh, and the model learns over time in order to create a function uh, that um, matches well enough what you're trying to model. So when we talk about classifying an image as a cat or a dog, um, this would be something called supervised learning, which is a term you're probably gonna come across uh, if you look further into machine learning. And what that means is that all of the data samples that you use in order to train your model are already labeled beforehand. So the images that you are passing into the model when you're training it already have the answer as a cat or a dog. So then once you pass a data sample through, you can check and see if the model has produced the correct answer or not. If it doesn't produce the correct answer, then the model will adjust the parameters um, in, it, in its model uh, in order to uh, more correctly classify the input the next time. So that's kind of how the learning takes place in a very high level.
0: Yeah. So you're giving it like a pretty large data set of, uh, of things that you have already classified and you're saying basically, yeah, so this is correct. This is incorrect. Like this is correct. This is incorrect. And then it's like deriving the answers from that.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. From a very high level, this is what it's doing. Um, and there are some really, really nice, uh, visualizations of this. Uh, online. And I can um, leave some links in the show notes.
0: Perfect. All right. So then you train your model. And the next step, I guess, is what is called inference, like actually getting results. So when people say inference about machine learning, what do they mean?
1: Right. So inference is actually super simple. It's just um, when you already have the trained model, if, if it's built to be accurate enough to your satisfaction, then inference is just passing an input into the model, such as an image of a cat or a dog, and then getting a prediction out of it. Uh, So you would get a, the output would actually be a probability distribution. So if it's the cat dog classifier, the model would give you, uh, perhaps 98% chance that it's a cat and 2% chance that it's a dog. Uh, so it's it 's just simply a prediction, but it 's just one of these terms that 's used and so um, it can lead to confusion um, if you if you don't uh, understand what this term is
0: yeah and speaking of speaking of terms there's there's quite a lot and two of them that are kind of commonly floated around you see it a lot in like apple 's keynotes and presentations, and they 're talking about deep learning they 're talking about neural networks you know what are, what are really these things and kind of what are they representing in terms of actual machine learning programs?
1: Right, so a neural network is just um, like one of the uh, ways of, of modeling a machine learning problem. And so um, you can think of it as kind of like a pipeline that your input data flows through. So you would pa- pass in Uh, an input of an image and it would go through different layers of a neural network it's very loosely based off of um, a neural network in your brain Um, and so you can you can think of it as like kind of a black box though like for the purposes of understanding it at a high level um, that you just pass in an input it goes through different layers in the network transformations are done on that input and then at the end you get an output that tells you what, what um, it thinks the input is. So either a cat or a dog in this simple example. Now deep learning, which is talked about all over the place in the media these days, is actually simply just a neural network that has many layers. So in the beginning, um, when neural networks were introduced, um, they only had three layers. So they had the input layer, uh, a, a hidden layer, it's called in the middle, and then an output layer. Um, deep learning is just a neural network that has lots of layers in the middle. And we're actually able to do this deep learning thing and do tons of transformation on the data because of the compute power that we have and the GPU uh, advancements that have been made in the past decade or so.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. It's always good, I think, to like start deciphering these terms. And after a while, you, like we mentioned, you start realizing that, okay, it's just like one term kind of is built on top of another one. And once you start learning some of these basic terms, then, you know, the, the core kind of uh, concept is not that complicated.
1: Yeah, totally agree. It's just like a a lot of little things and you kind of have to figure out how to connect the dots and map them together.
0: Yeah, exactly. So
1: it's really important to keep that in mind.
0: So um, last WWDC, there was a pretty big breakthrough for developers from Apple's platforms that are, you know, us, uh, you know, Swift developers who wants to start using, you know, machine learning, want to start diving to it. And that's that Apple released Core ML, which is their kind of, um, machine learning uh, high level framework, well, as high level as you get when it comes to machine learning, right? <laughs> yeah, so
1: um, yeah, in WWC 2017, Apple introduced Core ML. Um, so it's available starting in iOS 11. And it's also actually available for uh, the Mac and the watch and the tvOS.
0: You can have your TV run all your learning and stuff in the background while you're <laughs> just watching Netflix. <laughs> yeah,
1: perhaps we'll, we'll see some cool examples. But so I think it's important to make a decision, distinction between what CoreML can do and what it can't do. So... Uh, Remember how we talked about the training and inference parts of machine learning, where the training is when your model is learning to model the function, and the inference is uh, when it's already trained and you're making predictions. So CoreML just deals with the inference part. So in order to use CoreML, you all already have to have a model that has been trained. So you take this pre-trained model and you can use Apple's proprietary like, file format, ML model format, and you just drag it into your Xcode project and it generates a Swift file. And then you can use that in order to make predictions on say an image classifier that you have in order to use it within your normal app development. So this is a really big breakthrough because before CoreML was around, uh, you could use like metal performance shaders or this other Accelerate framework, but it was a lot of heavy lifting in order to be able to work with the model itself. Um, so CoreML makes it very simple and just a couple of lines of code in order to make a prediction.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And I think, yeah, that's a really important distinction to make because, you know, when I was first looking into CoreML, I was looking at it and I was like, wait, wait a second, like, how do I even get started using this? And then I realized, yeah, you actually need one of those pre-trained models that you can get by using, you know, other types of tools like... Uh, TensorFlow, for example, and then you can export those into, or you can run like a script, a Python script to generate a format that CoreML understands. And that's what it's actually going to use to make its predictions.
1: Right, exactly. So um, it it makes sense if you think about it, because uh, doing training on an iOS device, uh, it's not really ready yet because it requires a decent amount of compute power in order to train a model. And so... Uh what makes the most sense right now as far as the hardware that we have is to uh, take that model that's already been trained and just make predictions on the device.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Still it's still it still gives us some great advantages though, like user privacy because you can just do things locally and really fast uh user experience because you don't have to send anything to the server.
0: So speaking of uh you know the kind of limitations of core ml, uh what are some of the kind of use cases for it? Like what kind of tasks do you think Uh, Core ML and, you know, the type of machine learning that Apple is kind of using right now, uh, you know, what kind of tasks are, is that suitable for?
1: As far as general tasks, like image classification is the like very common example and it it is like probably the most suitable task for um, using like neural networks, convolutional neural networks especially. Um, and so the way that Apple does this is um, you can see that they do this already in like the Photos app, um, and they have actually been – they have been doing learning on the device. It's not available for us yet, but they have. Uh, so anything where you have image classification, whether it's a um, – still image or a video and you're trying to process the frames this is something that's very suitable for machine learning especially for video actually because you don't want to be sending all of the frames to uh run um predictions to the server because you have to have that whole round trip time in order to get the predictions if you do that right so if you do that on the device that that can provide a much better user experience but um beyond image classification um you can actually do a lot more. You can do a lot with audio. Uh, and I, I gave an example on my app builders uh, talk about um, classifying urban sounds because there's this really nice urban sounds uh, database that's open and you can classify um, sounds that you would normally hear on the street, like a, an air conditioner, a siren, uh, a child crying. So, um, I mean, this is this is an example that can kind of give you a baseline to generate ideas if you have your own proprietary data, or you can find data elsewhere, but you can definitely do audio classification. Uh, speech recognition, um, text classification, uh, gesture recognition, like these are all suitable for, for machine learning. So there's a lot you can do with that.
0: So if I wanted to build an app that you know, listens on the microphone and displays an emoji for the current situation, like, oh, there's someone crying in the background, crying emoji, or oh, there's a party, party popper emoji, I could use machine learning for that
1: definitely actually (laughs) yeah you got a new idea and i think i think it's also something you can think of as uh just uh using as a tool for a feature in your app so you don't even have to have a machine learning app where the core feature uses machine learning it could just be like some part of your app um say you have like some sort of customer service chat in your app you could use machine learning in order to um like do some analysis on the text that's coming through, uh, in order to like adapt the way that the customer service conversation is going. Uh, this is actually something I just thought of off the top of my head right now. But... We're giving
0: the the listeners so many great app ideas here. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I think I think you should just like think of it as, as part of your tool set. Um, yeah, and it can be it can be really powerful. So uh, yeah, something that you can keep in mind that's definitely within reach.
0: Yeah, that sounds really great. And it's I think it's it's very it's a very good point there to kind of. You know, when when faced with technologies like these, usually like the first idea that I at least jump through is like, okay, how can I take this new technology and kind of make a product out of it? Like how can I, like the emoji app I was just mentioning, but I think it's also great to start thinking about, okay, how can I use these capabilities in an app that I'm already building?
1: Right, yeah. I, I, think, I think this is something that a lot of people end up doing. And actually uh, a couple of times in the past, Six months, I've searched the App Store for like Core ML because I think that the App Store searches uh, the release notes as well. And the only apps that I can come up with that are are usually classifiers for images for generic like the 1,000 categories that you would normally classify that um, isn't so custom. So I think there's a lot of like room for improvement in uh, what people are are doing. And besides the App Store search, like I I've I've met some people, or I've like read read blog posts or discovered apps that are using machine learning in pretty inno- innovative ways. A uh, an app that I heard of called Zill. I actually don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct. It's Z Y L. Uh, this is a photo app. Um, it's a app and it's a video and photo manager um, that I guess is supposed to be used as a replacement for the Photos app. Um, but it um, does really nice like sorting and grouping and uh, It also deletes unnecessary photos in your albums like so if there are a lot of blurry images that look to be like the same uh in a row uh then it will just delete those and it also like adapts to your like habits for what you um are normally like grouping your photos as so i thought that was pretty cool um and there's also um this is like a i think a totally like different example but i think it's something that's really interesting is there's a company that makes an app for identifying plant diseases and um, so uh, if if you're in a resource constrained area that doesn't really have much connectivity um, and they I guess this is being deployed in like uh, countries in Eastern Africa uh, there they can use an app in order to the farmers can use an app in order to take a picture of a plant and it diagnoses whether or not the plant has a disease Oh wow! and then it can um, advise the farmers on how to treat their crops so that they can like move in the, the right direction and it's kind of like they have even more expertise right at their fingertips because the model that's being used in the app is trained so um, is like trained so well in order to help them like that's beyond the human eye. So that I think that's something that's like really also kind of like relevant is that a lot of these machine learning models can help people who actually might have the expertise themselves. But um, the like humans can miss things because you might be really tired or it's just hard to hard to do so many things like over and over again for these some repetitive tasks. So there are areas that can actually provide a lot of impact.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And that's like one of these things, which is like, you know, really making a big impact in society and in people's lives. And, you know, we see machine learning being used to like help doctors identify, you know, cancer or other diseases and you know, m- you know, matching these patterns and, and finding these things. And that is just really fascinating to me. And, you know, when you can actually do that as an app developer yourself, like on, in your iOS app, I just think that is an, an, is, is an incredible power to have. And I think also that I can use this plant app that you mentioned to finally be able to keep a plant alive in my apartment. Do you think so? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think actually I need that too. Especially with yeah. all the conference travel.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, I, think I need
1: something to help.
0: <laughs> is your plant dehydrated? <laughs> Point the camera.
1: Yeah, text a friend to come over to your apartment <laughs> That's and we'll perfect. on the plan.
0: Great. Uh, I think what we want to do now is move a little bit over to talk about you know how we as iOS developers, as Swift developers, can start actually using machine learning and what are some of the steps that we need to take in order to do so. Uh, but before we do, I want to take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor. And it's once again my good friends at Bitrise. BitRice gives you fast, reliable and easy to use continuous integration. And the best part is that you can sign up completely for free. All you have to do is click the link that is in the show notes for this episode. It will take you to BitRice and you can get started completely for free. So here's why I love BitRice. I'm a freelancer and I want to make sure that I ship code to my customers. That is of really high quality. But I also want to ship as often as possible, many times per day. And with Bitrise, instead of requiring my customers to come and ask me for a new build or you know, how's this new feature going, I can just automatically send it to them on every single commit that I make. So what I do for every app that I work on is that I go to Bitrise and I set up a workflow and I can do that completely visually in the browser. You know, I tell Bitrise to build the app, run the tests, run tools like SwiftLint and Danger. And then if everything is green, it creates an archive and it sends a beta build to the testers and to the customer. That way I don't have to run a Mac mini in my closet. I don't have to spend hours fiddling around with setting things up. I can just write my Swift code, push to GitHub, Bitrise will automatically pick it up and everything just works. It's super, super nice. So to get started, you just have to click the link that is in the current chapter right now in your podcast player, or you can just open the show notes for this episode and click the link there. That lets you sign up completely for free and you can even run up to 200 bills per month for free as well. And after that, if you need to do more bills, or you need more concurrency, they've got some really good pricing options as well. Please remember to use that link in the show notes when signing up because it tells Bitrise that you came from this show, which really helps support me and my work. Thanks so much to Bitrise for sponsoring Swift by Sundell and for helping me to continue making this show possible. All right. So, you know, we are all iOS developers or Swift developers, and, you know, we want to get into machine learning. So, what are some of the steps that we need to go through in order to actually start leveraging machine learning in our apps?
1: Right. That's a really good question, John. So, I think in order to go through these, uh, I can walk through an example, and it's one that I used for my app builders talk. So, uh, say you wanted to be able to classify American Sign Language alphabet characters. So, if um, a user is pointing their camera at someone who is signing the American Sign Language um, alphabet, then the model would be able to um, classify what that is. So I personally don't know all of the American Sign Language alphabet characters. Um, so like uh, this model would be able to help me um, communicate with someone who is doing this. Uh, if, there was, if there was some sort of situation where this would be helpful. So uh, if we wanted to do this, uh, there isn't an existing model that's out there that we can just drop into our Xcode project and start using. Um, because Apple does provide a couple of models uh, for us to work with, but not something that's super custom like that. So in order to do that we need to define the problem first and so i just def- defined the problem so we want to make an image classifier that takes in an input image of someone um, making an american sign language uh, alphabet character and we want the model to be able to classify it correctly um, and so once we define the problem we can we need to gather data and we need to gather enough data that's going to be able to train a model that uh, is accurate enough that we'll be able to work with and be happy with, um, that it would provide a good user experience. So a pretty accurate model. Um, But where do you get data for something like this? That's something that I get asked quite a lot. Um, The good thing is that um, there's a lot of open data sources. So you can just Google for uh, data on whatever problem you're trying to do. And there actually is an open data set for this that was built by um, a university in the UK. So that's what I actually used as the baseline for this.
0: And those would be, like, images of people actually doing the different signs, like, and they will be annotated with, like, this is an A or this is a B, etc.
1: Yes, that's a very good point. Yes, so uh, they, they need to be annotated images to do supervised learning, which is, like, the a very common way of... Um, of training a machine learning model. right? Um, And so for this, yeah, so I had a data set which had a couple of thousand images of each of the sign language characters and they were labeled already. And um, you usually just put this in a folder that has a subfolder for each of the categories. And they're also called classes in like the machine learning terminology. So I had a folder called um, American Sign Language Data Set. And then underneath that, I would have like a, and that would be a folder with a couple of thousand images of someone signing an A. Right. Um, it's actually important for uh, the data to be uh, diverse too, because uh, you want this model to be trained on data that's uh, representative of model of data that it's going to see in real life. So you cannot just use like one person. Um, so the data has to be like representative of, of your user base. So that's something that you should, w- although there's so many resources out there online where you can find uh, data for free and a lot of times it's, it's pretty good quality, you should do a sanity check to make sure that the data is representative of what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, because if I just, if I wanted to do this and I just like would take photos of myself doing these signs, then it would just learn my way of doing it, right? And it wouldn't necessarily work on you doing it or someone else doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would probably work OK for me, but it it, it, it wouldn't be ideal. It's better if you have like a, a diverse data set of lots of different people, people of different ages, um, like yeah, different ethnicities, different uh, genders, yeah, everything you can think of that would represent your uh, user base. So then once you have the data, then you can start training the machine learning model. So in order to train a machine learning model, there are lots of frameworks out there. Um, And the one that's like a very popular choice and very well-documented and has lots of plans for the future is TensorFlow. And so this is what I use for training my sign language classifier. Um, But you can also use uh, Apple's Turi Create, which was released in December, and it's actually open source. Uh, It's also a really good option. You can use Keras, which is also by Google. It's a little bit higher level than TensorFlow. Uh, there's, there's actually, there are so many of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the most important thing to focus on when you choose which framework, uh, is that, that it's easy enough to use and has good documentation and that it's compatible with Core ML because it needs to be converted to a Core ML model after it's trained. Right. Um, so there's, there's good documentation on this, uh, on the Apple's machine learning homepage on which models are, uh, which training frameworks are compatible with Core ML.
0: But other than that, other than being actually Core ML compatible, it doesn't really matter what you use, you can just like pick the one that you prefer?
1: No, that's the starting point. So I, I would say the most important thing is make sure that it's compatible with Core ML, whether it's compatible with Apple's tool that they have, or it's compatible with an open source tool that's um, documented well. Um, TensorFlow is actually not supported by Apple's tool, but they have their own tool, which works very well. So that's the first thing. And then the second most important thing would be uh, that uh, the framework um, is producing layers in your model that are compatible with what Quaromel can do. And I would say this is like a secondary concern, because if you're trying to do something that's like classifying, making an image classifier, uh, and you're not doing something super fancy, then it's high probability that those layers will be compatible. But there is extensive documentation on this too and a couple of blogs, um, and I can provide a link for that.
0: Great. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh,
1: So yeah, once you have your model that's trained, and um, yeah, I don't want to make it sound so much like step one uh, draw an owl, <laughs> um, <laughs> draw an owl face and then step two, you have a perfect owl. Step um, three, profits. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, there is definitely, um, a little bit involved in this, uh, but the best tutorial, in my opinion, is this thing called TensorFlow for poets. Um, and it's really, really, um, easy to follow and it gives really intuitive explanations of what's happening at each step. And I use this in my talk as well. Um, Not to do too much self-promotion, but I I mean, I just finished making these materials. So uh, I talk a lot about uh, what's involved in training in the talk and also um, go through that tutorial in the talk. So those are starting points, but there certainly are a lot uh, of things involved in that. Uh, And then once, so once you have that, then you need to convert it to core ML format. And so the way you do that is by uh, using core ML tools, which is an open source Python uh, framework. I totally for- gloss over the fact that these training uh, frameworks are mostly in Python because that's just what the data science uh, community is primarily focused on. And so, but the good thing is you don't need to know too much Python. You just need to know enough Python in order to get the task done. And it's right there aren't it's it's very few lines of code relative to NAP. So you can use to convert the model to Core ML format. You can use Core ML tools by Apple. And it's just uh, and it's just a cup like a couple of lines of code in order to convert this, or you can use something like um, TensorFlow's conversion tool, um, which is open source on GitHub and also in Python. Um, and so once you use those one one of those tools, you will have an ML model format um, machine learning model, and from there it's actually very simple to finish up like integrating this into your app you just drag that into your xcode project it auto generates a swift file and then you can use the core ml framework uh with the swift file that's that's produced
0: i think this is really cool actually that they went that route because this is one of the first times i've seen apple actually do code generation for like an asset like for example like when you drop images or or files, any other files or fonts, et cetera, into your Xcode projects. You don't get this like nicely formatted uh, Swift code that you can already use, but for machine learning, you actually do.
1: Yeah, I think it's awesome that they did this, especially because I've done some machine learning training and tried to use the model with um, just like web app before, like so separate of iOS. Um, and a lot of the stumbling blocks have to do with just... Um, Uh, the tooling and uh, just some of the heavy lifting you have to do with scripting in order to be able to have your model in a format that it's usable.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So this has been like a problem in the whole machine learning community uh, for quite a while. So I think it's cool that Apple like went, took the approach of making it very simple.
0: Yeah, it's always very nice when it's like easy at the call site when we you know you've already done like the the hard work of you know training the model getting the data converting the file and I guess this is like you know this is a big process in of its own but you know once you've done that you can use it easily within your in your swift code
1: yeah it's awesome
0: so speaking about training i mean that's a big step right like and you mentioned you know you can get some you know uh, you can use annotated images you can get these free data sets but is this something you can you know do on your laptop is this something you can do on your own computer or do you need like you know to buy uh, 15 instances in, on amazon s3 and you know run all those <laughs> for like two years or you know w- w- what kind of uh, what kind of power are we talking about here
1: yeah it totally depends on the task that that's at hand but the cool thing is, and this is, this is what my talk focus on, is there's a technique that's um, got, gotten better and more like industry standard in the past couple of years called transfer learning. And this, this technique allows you to um, work off of the work of other models um, in order to just retrain a generic image classifier, for example, uh for your specific tasks and so since your work since you're piggybacking off of work that's already been done and we we'll, can go into this in more detail you actually only need um not you only need a small amount of data by small i mean um a couple of hundreds or uh, to a couple of thousand images um per category so you actually don't need millions of data points um contrary to uh some some people's expectations and some blogs that you may read out there that used to be the approach but that's when you're training a network from scratch yeah and um by the experts in the community, such as Andrew Eng, who's a professor at Stanford, and uh, um, he's been like a pioneer in machine learning. He, and he has a really great course online. He recommends never going the route of training a network from scratch anymore, unless you're pretty sure that your task is that unique, that you're not able to reuse the work of some other models. So um, you, you should try your best to use a network that's already there, and then just train the last couple of layers, um, which you can do in TensorFlow very easily, uh, in order to fit your specific task.
0: So basically, what we're talking about is creating something that's like specialized for your task at hand. So would would an example be, you know, if I use? If I already use something that's able to classify images into categories and is able to like you know recognize buildings, and then I you know give it I give it like a thousand images of the Empire State Building in order to actually be able to zone in and say okay this is actually the Empire State Building, would that be like a good example?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'll I'll, I'll try my best to just like kind of clarify this uh, again, but it's re- it's a very visual concept, so it's it's uh, I would recommend checking out. What this looks like visually uh after the podcast but um so if you think of a classifier that classifies everyday objects um into like the thousand different categories that there's an industry standard model for this and the one that's for mobile is called mobile net um and in this neural network the first couple of layers are just recognizing very generic features so they're just recognizing edges and um yeah, things that are generic to like all sorts of objects. And then towards the middle, it's going to start recognizing some, like corners and grids. And then towards the end of the network, that's when it's going to start recognizing that an image is like a, a, a cat or like it will probably notice like a face or it might notice like a, that something is a building or a car. And so intuitively, you should be able to use most of that network in order to train something like the American Sign Language classifier. Um, so in order to do... That classifier, basically, I just um, retrained the mobile net in order to make a classifier. So it just at the end of the network, instead of classifying into a thousand different categories, it just classifies and recognizes the machi- the American Sign Language alphabet.
0: So it's like drilling like one level deeper into the hierarchy, if you will, if you look at it that way, you know, like you go to the, one of the top level hierarchies, but then you, or one of the top level categories, but then you dive, you're basically creating new subcategories of that specific category.
1: Right, yeah. There are like analogies to real life. Um, I try not to take it too far uh, to compare machine learning with like the brain. Um, but uh, if you think about like learning a musical instrument, If you learned piano or something um then at first you had to learn like how to even read music in the first place and like just music related skills if you then go to learn like the organ you're not going to learn everything from scratch again
0: right you're going to be able
1: to reuse a lot of that knowledge and you're going to be able to learn the organ a lot faster than you learn piano
0: yeah, exactly. All right, so one tool that you've mentioned now a few times is TensorFlow. And this is uh, really interesting, I think, because Chris Latner, the creator of Swift, is actually now working on it, partly at least at Google. And one thing that they announced, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, they announced that apart from supporting Python, TensorFlow will also soon support Swift. And this is, of course, super interesting to, to us, that we can actually soon start you know, actually using Swift as a tooling language for training machine learning models.
1: Right, yeah. So TensorFlow, I think, is a great option for training because they have really great documentation, and it's open source, and a lot of people are depending on it, So and they have a lot of plans for the future. So I think it's going to continue in this direction. Uh, there are other frameworks out there are great options too, but I'm not sure about um, uh, what their plans for the future are because some of them are not as forthcoming about them. And they just had this yeah, TensorFlow Dev Summit in March. And Chris Lattner announced that uh, TensorFlow will also be supported uh, in Swift now. So that kind of makes sense in retrospect, uh, because there were uh, these Swift evolution proposals about improving the Swift and Python interoperability uh, in the past couple of months. And uh, kind of made sense that it was going in the direction of something machine learning. Uh, but it all clicked when I was watching the TensorFlow Dev Summit that, okay yeah, this totally makes sense that Chris Latner would be working on exactly this.
0: This Um, is where we're heading all along.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. um, And I think this is going to make machine learning even more accessible to Swift developers because it's going to take away this Python uh, barrier uh, that some people may... uh, see some people may see Python as a barrier, even though you don't have to know so much Python, but it will just be within the whole ecosystem now um, once this is released. And so I think that uh, the plan for it is that it's supposed to be open sourced in April. So any day now we should see it. And I think what that is, is it's just the first stages of it will be open source and it's gonna have an open design process. So I don't know if it will be like ready to use in production uh, in in the next week, but we'll at least, get a peek into what the plans are in more detail.
0: Yeah, that sounds super interesting. I mean, if we look at any of Chris Lattner's previous projects, I'm not surprised that it's going to have an open design process. Yeah, I think this <laughs> is know? great. I'm, I'm yeah. like a
1: really big fan of, of open source software, and uh, I, I was really happy when Swift was open source, so uh, this is something I'm really excited about. And I'm also excited about a statically typed language being used for uh, machine learning. It's something that's not so common, and I think this will help us with... a. Uh, um, Catching issues at compile time.
0: Yeah, and it's yet another uh, kind of step for Swift in becoming like a true general purpose language. You know, we've seen things like server side Swift coming along, Swift scripting, you know, command line tools in Swift. And now we also have, you know, machine learning in Swift. And that is, you know, just yet another, you know, you're broadening the scope of Swift, you're making it more like a general purpose language and appealing to more people, which is always really exciting.
1: Totally, I think so. And uh, actually, this is a story for another day, but I uh, worked a little bit with CERN on this um, paper about like software for high energy physicists last year, and I was surprised by how interested some of them were in Swift. Um, I mean, they're not using it at CERN, but it was something that was kind of like on their radar for something that could be interesting to use for some some parts of their development in the future. So I think that that's saying something because. Yeah, I, I, I previously, like two years ago, I would have never expected Swift to go much beyond iOS and Mac developers.
0: Yeah, the the open sourcing of Swift has really taken off in really many interesting ways. And, you know, so many more different communities are looking at it. And that is it's just really, really exciting to to see that happening as like a you know, as a developer who's been primarily focused on Apple technologies to actually be able to use our language in other contexts. I mean, that, that was definitely not true for Objective-C unless you wanted to use web objects. Yeah, it's true.
1: Yeah, it was very, there were very specific reasons why you would learn Objective-C. So I guess that, that opens options for all of us too. So yeah, um, we can, it's really exciting. It's really cool
0: cool so one thing we've been talking a lot about is core ml and you know using core ml and and uh you know how it's like a pretty high level framework you you export your model you put in your xcode project you get the swift code generated so what is actually kind of core ml doing so what are kind of the underpinning technologies that that power core ml because one thing that i find really fascinating uh when looking at this stuff is that you know, as someone who has done, you know, a little bit of graphics programming and working with, with shaders and, and and the GPU programming is that so much of the stack is actually very similar between graphics programming and machine learning.
1: Right. Yeah. So um, previously, before Caramel was out, you could use Metal in order to do machine learning, on, like inference on the device, uh, you would use um, metal performance shaders uh it was something called metal performance shaders convolutional neural networks and you still can use these actually um, and that's what CoreML is using under the hood uh, so ML decides for you whether it should use metal performance shaders which targets the gpu or if it should use um accelerate uh, a different framework which uh targets the cpu so um if you wanted to do machine learning inference before ios 11 you would have had to decide yourself whether or not you wanted to use metal or accelerate um depending on if you wanted to uh do a task on the gpu or the cpu but CoreML abstracts that away for us from us which i think is pretty cool because um they're able to uh detect for us like what would make sense to do on um like the CPU or the GPU, um, and so we we don't have to make that decision ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's really really cool because now Apple is also making so many advancements, especially within you know their own chips and you know their own GPUs that they're designing now. And with the iPhone X and the iPhone eight, we have this like Bionic chip that is like tailor made in some ways for machine learning. So I guess also this is where this framework comes in, like Core ML, because it can't pick the right implementation depending on what hardware it's running on.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that it kind of like all makes sense. There are so many moving pieces. And uh, there were like rumors about Apple creating a machine learning specific chip last, like over a year ago. And um, everything like all came together kind of at once when the iPhone 10 was released. And I think that the Bionic chip, the A11 chip, is something like thirty um, percent faster than the A10 chip, uh, but it uses half the energy.
0: Yeah, it's something like that. It's really crazy. Like when you see the graph, it like it looks like a hockey stick, right? It's just like shooting up in terms of performance. <laughs> like every year, it's you know twice as fast, twice as fast. Awesome. What do you say? Should we round off this episode by answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Awesome. So the first one we have it comes from Federico Sanetello. And he wants to know a little bit about how CoreML has changed your workflow as an iOS developer, because he knows that you were into machine learning, you know, before last year's WWDC. So now that we have CoreML, has that like fundamentally changed the way you work with machine learning?
1: Uh, I think it has because before my interest in machine learning and my day-to-day development as an iOS developer were still very separate. And so I kind of just saw my machine learning interests as a, a very a side hobby. Uh, and I wouldn't dedicate as much time to it. But now whenever I think of an idea or I um, oftentimes actually I'll read research papers about really cool techniques that are happening in machine learning and I will re- I'll reproduce their results uh i i'll do this more often because i know that there can be an end product a lot more easily now that we have coreML. um and i don't have to do all the heavy lifting and i wasn't so great uh or like committed to learning um metal performance shaders so um this this really has kind of uh, shortcut the whole process for um going from going from idea generation for what could be an interesting problem in machine learning that's relevant for mobile and uh, like getting a like prototype working. I actually don't, um, I haven't been like releasing so much because I'm still kind of in this like tool building phase where I'm just trying to like see the scope of everything out there. Um, But it it has changed my workflow because I have like lots of ideas and get to uh, toy around with a lot of things.
0: Yeah. One thing that I really love when Apple makes some of these frameworks, it was the same when they introduced SpriteKit a while back for game development, is like it really lowers the barrier for entry. Because, you know, Apple, they tend to write quite good documentation for the most part. (laughs) And it's like, well integrated into our tools, you know, things that we know how to use, and when it's in Swift, etc. So, it, it really makes it easier, I guess, to just like dive in and like you say, focus on the idea and not have to kind of, you know, figure out all the low level tools that you need to use.
1: Yeah. And I actually think that people um, should, should keep this in mind that you can actually just like look at a research paper, read the abstract uh, and go through as many details as you can and skip down to the uh, part where the uh, the researcher tells you how to reproduce the results, because they're often very thorough, and uh, the, it's a really good place to um, take an idea that someone's been working on for a long time and be able to uh, see if it fits into your app, as long as like, you check the license and everything. But I think it's a really good, good um, starting point.
0: Yeah, I really love research papers, because it's almost like the reproduction steps are almost like the unit tests for the <laughs> for the paper. You know, yeah. it's like, if this passes, then it's valid.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, that's great. All right, we have another great question here from Jan Östlund, a uh, Swedish guy, you know, that's why I can pronounce the name in the <laughs> in <a> special way, <laughs> special magic power. Um, and this is a little bit about the accessibility, and we talked about it uh, during the show, but so Jan's question here is that even if Apple provides CoreML, it just feels a little bit overwhelming when, you know, you glance through the documentation. So you still have to kind of understand uh, the fundamental machine learning. So what are some of the, like, great places to start? If we wanted to provide, like, a, you know, 101, like, where what's the best place to just get started to learn all the fundamentals?
1: Hmm. So uh, I, I really don't mean to, like, put, be pushing my own material, but... I think that the most important thing to uh, know is just what the end-to-end process looks like uh, from going uh, from an idea to training a model and then using it with Core ML. I think you should have a high-level overview of what's happening and what each of the steps are. And uh, my course on Udacity uh, targets the Core ML part of this. Um, so that you can understand the end-to-end process uh, and, and get started. So I have that pinned to my Twitter page. We can also put that in the notes. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the TensorFlow for Poets tutorial is really great for um, learning how to train a custom model with, with very little resources, so little data and compute power. Um, and it, it does a really good job of uh, explaining the intuition behind it. If you want to know more, uh, there are also plenty of courses for like, understanding the more minutia about training and some of the math behind it. And Fast AI is a free one online. We can also leave in the notes. Uh, and uh, they, they want to bring machine learning to the masses. So I think this is a, also a good place to start if you wanted to go even further
0: excellent yeah that sounds really good
1: so there there are lots of terms in machine learning and uh just don't be afraid by the terms like if you find something that you don't understand uh if you come across a word that you've never seen before uh don't automatically assume that it's something that you need a phd to understand like I, I would just suggest Googling it. And then uh, I find just like looking at YouTube videos for understanding um, like a visual of what's happening is is really helpful. And there are tons of them for machine learning. There's been like an explosion in this content in the past year or two. So uh, I think I think that's also like a backup.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like one other really confusing thing about you know learning a new uh, part of software development is that there's so many terms that are terms you've heard before, but in different contexts. So when we talk about a model, we're not talking about a model in MVC, right? We're Mm -hmm. talking about something completely different. And we're talking about a function, we're talking about something completely different. So I think that, you know, when you see these things, you have these ideas of what it might mean, but then it turns out that it means something different. So I think it's, it's good to try to go in with a completely open mind and to just like, okay, let me just try to re- learn this from the beginning. Let, let me not make any assumptions about what the terms might mean, and instead kind of look it up and take it step by step.
1: Yeah, and it, and it takes some time. I seriously, when I'm learning something new, especially if it's a dense topic, I actually will just Google the concept and then uh, at the end put explain it like I'm five. I, I have like no shame doing this. and I find this to be like a good, a good good starting point. Like I don't automatically jump to the like densest textbook, like structure and interpretation of computer programs, type textbook on understanding something because although, although those are canonical resources, it's not necessarily um, the greatest introduction.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's always good to do Wikipedia based learning in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's perfect. All right. So yeah, I hope this episode provided you with some starting points. You know, like we mentioned during the show, we'll leave a ton of links in the show notes so you can get started in looking into CoreML, looking into machine learning, training your own models and all that good fun stuff. So we've now reached the end of this episode. It's been really jam-packed, I think. So I'm really, really happy about it. And I sure learned a lot uh, talking to you, Megan. So thank you very much for joining me on this episode.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, John. And uh, I hope people learned something from this and... Uh, you can always reach out to me on Twitter. Um, my handle is Megaphone, uh, M-E-G-H-A-F-O-N. We can leave it in the notes as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And my
1: DMs are open. So send me any questions that you have. I'll try to get back to you as, as soon as I can. Uh, and yeah, thanks, thanks for listening.
0: That's perfect. Uh, where else can people find you online uh, if, except for Twitter?
1: Uh, I have a website, but I don't host a blog yet. You did inspire me with your app builders talk, uh, (laughs) on sharing. (laughs) So hopefully I will blog at some point in the future. Uh, I, you can also follow me on GitHub. Um, uh, I, I should open source more as well. Uh, so we we can leave that in the, in the links too. But Twitter is the most effective way, yeah.
0: Yeah, follow you on Twitter, and then maybe there will be a ML by Kane, you know, in the future. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. All right, that sounds awesome. Cool. You can also find me uh, on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell. There might be a ML by Sundell in the future, too. Who knows? Who knows what's what's going to happen? Uh, But for now, you can find everything about this show, and you can find all the show notes at swiftbysundell.com. Once again, thanks a lot to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. And thanks so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.